I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The Deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcasts. And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Bostic on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. MMT, Modern Monetary Theory, is having a moment. What was once a heterodox branch of economics is now entering the mainstream as a major topic of debate. The Democratic House Budget Chairman John Yarmuth is considering whether to hold a congressional hearing on the topic, while some of the biggest names in the business, finance, and policy worlds have felt the need to weigh in on the subject, many of them as staunch critics, like Fed Chair Jerome Powell. The idea that deficits don't matter for countries that can borrow in their own currency, I think, is just wrong. Former Fed Chair Alan Greenspan. You have to shut down your foreign exchange markets. And how, how do you exchange stuff? <laughs> People will be trying to fly out of your currency. BlackRock CEO Larry Fink. Modern monetary theory isn't going to take care of this problem. I was going to say something I shouldn't say on television. That's garbage. And the man President Trump once wanted for the Fed, Stephen Moore. If you could create growth by printing money, then Zimbabwe and Argentina and Venezuela would be the richest countries in the world. Look, we want, a, we want a stable price system. We want lower taxes. We want free trade. We want less regulation. We want to unhinder our businesses so they can grow and employ more people. That's what we're doing. But my goodness, can you imagine the idea that we just keep printing money and somehow that's going to create growth? It's, it's a, it's a, if the fact that people are actually taking that serious is disturbing to me. So we got a view from the other side of the debate with modern monetary theory pioneer Warren Mosler. Warren is the author of The Seven Deadly Innocent Frauds of Economic Policy and has been pushing for a change in how we think about deficits for over two decades. We started by asking him how it felt after working on the economic fringe for so long to be in a moment where so many people were opining about MMT. Yeah, I see it as a badge of honor. I mean, it's been 25 years growing from the bottom up, Mm -hmm. one, then two, then four, then eight. Now, after 25 years, it's in the millions, and it's pure force of logic has got it where it is. It's not going anywhere. So, uh, pure force yeah. of logic, I mean, I understand why it's so people are talking about it. Yeah. Is it something, though, that you think could actually be implemented on a real level? Well, it's not something you implement. It's once you understand how monetary operations work, diff- you have different policy options. Mm-hmm. They become obvious that they are policy options, and they're not um, off the list, so to speak. And so that's what's happening. They're realizing that the policy options are there that they hadn't realized were there before. Well, I'm curious about this because I do think that this idea of implementing it, because yeah. I do think that when people hear MMT, there is a descriptive framework with like, yes. this is how monetary operations actually work in a country that actually yeah. print, uh, has its own currency. Right. And then there's the prescription, and often that includes a job guarantee. And these days, a lot of the MMT advocates are very uh, pushing for uh, yeah. a Green New Deal. Are they separable? Can is it, when you when does MMT just refer to the uh, description or does it have to encompass all of that the prescription as well? 
okay, so uh, you'd say core MMT is just a prescription, but some of these, it also shows you a base case for analysis. Okay. And when you're at that base case, you can then make changes, you, but you have to have a base case. And what, uh, what becomes obvious is once you understand the monetary system is what's called the job guarantee, I call it the transition job, is a base case for analysis, which then you can change if you wish, do it or not do it. So once people, if you were to go down this road or a country were to go down this road, you're essentially, just so I understand this right, you're kind of shifting some of the responsibility for management of the economy away from the central bank yeah. and more towards, the, more towards, obviously, the legislatures or whoever controls fiscal policy. Well, there are three or four main things we recognize, and right. one of them is that interest rate uh, policy, you know, they've got it backwards. Mm-hmm. So higher rates are actually expansionary and inflationary. Lower rates are actually contractionary and deflationary. Because the government's a net payer of interest to the economy. So when, if you start off with a zero-rate policy, like maybe in Japan, and then you raise rates, it's like basic income for people who already have money. Now, I've heard a lot of basic income arguments from both sides, but I've never had anybody prescribe it to, to give it just to people who already have money. But that's what happens when you raise rates, because the government's a large net payer of interest. And when rates came down uh, after 08, uh, the amount of interest expense that was cut was like $400 billion a year. And I, I remember, I think a lot of the MMT yeah. critics were, or the, sorry, the MMTers were critical of QE because in, that, in the way you describe it, yeah. that is essentially siphoning off interest, rate, interest payments to the private sector, where it was helpful, to essentially a quasi-arm of the government, which wasn't helpful. Yeah, the first time I was critical was 1997, speaking to representatives from the Bank of Japan. They were going to try it and pointed out why it's not going to work. And, uh, it, you know, and there were people there from the Bank of England and everybody pretty much agreed. And now, but it didn't, it's different now because we've had 30 years of seeing that it doesn't work. We've had almost 10 years of seeing it in Europe and we had years here. So it's gotten a lot more attention now because it's become more obvious that interest rate policy doesn't work. And uh, they're, they're saying our models are broken, uh, our forecasts aren't happening, it doesn't work. We've got to re- relook at our monetary policy. And... They're just leaving out this interest income channel. It's a oh, big channel. But then why do you think they're gravitating specifically, though, to your sort of prescription? I yeah. mean, I think we all kind of agree that maybe yeah. the, the current system isn't quite as functional right. so, as it could So what, what I'm saying is I'm not saying we're taking control away from the central mm-hmm. bank. I'm saying they never had it. Okay. It's like the child in the car seat with the steering wheel that's not connected to anything. Yeah. You're saying, well, we can't. We have to have this drunk behind the wheel. Congress drive. We want this little kid with the. But it's not connected to anything. So it opens your eyes to see that we don't have an option. Congress has always been driving, largely by the automatic stabilizers, right? But often by proactive mode. And the, the Fed's never been driving. What, let's, uh, we, you know, this yeah. fiscal policy versus monetary debate, yeah. the, more, the more interesting or the most salient thing right now in macro policy probably has to do with tr- trade. So yes. what do you make of Trump's policies on trade? And if he continues to go down this road, road what is, uh, from your perspective, the ramifications? Uh, he's undermining our standard of living and he's getting no pushback from any of the financial press, right? If you send out somebody shopping, I mean, you're trying to get the best possible price. Right. Here we are complaining about China because they're not charging us enough, complaining about Canada because they're not charging us enough for lumber. I mean, this is like, what's this all about? That just makes it worse for us. Is there any strategic argument to say like, okay, 
yes, maybe we're not going to get as good of a prices if we have tariffs. But on the other hand, this is a technological arms race, and there are other factors. And could those supersede the sort of short-term uh, demands that we might get or the short-term case for importing cheaper products from China? Right. So number one, for the products that are not strategically important, you try and get the best possible case. If you're a good shopper, you try and buy the lowest possible price. Okay, and then you keep a high demand in the economy through fiscal adjustments so that people who are displaced, there's plenty of other employers looking for them and even begging for them. Okay, now if we have strategically important items, they have to be addressed directly. If we want to make sure we have domestic production of steel for the military, we should source all of the military steel domestically. And so we can directly source the strategically de uh, important items domestically without interfering with us getting the best prices for everything else. Talk to me a little bit about inflation and, yeah. and, and kind of how it connects in all this, particularly yeah. with regards to budget deficits. As well. Okay, so the currency is, we recognize the currency uh, as a public monopoly. Mm -hmm. Monopolists are price setter. So it's a little technical, but the price level is a function of prices paid by the government when it spends. Mm -hmm. And so you, when you spend, when the government spends, it's not creating any inflation until it pays more for the same thing. Okay. And that'll happen if you've bought so much that we've used up a productive capacity that's offered for sale, mm -hmm. and then to buy more, you have to pay higher prices. And then you're going into inflation. But let me say that, yes, excess spending can cause inflation, and I could do it if you put me in charge. I could spend a lot. But, you know, I've been in banking and finance since 1973, and I have never yet seen an inflation caused by overspending. It's always caused by something else. We had the oil price shock. Uh, Turkey has 25% inflation with 10% unemployment. That's not underspending. Uh, overspending. Yeah. Let's talk about real quickly the Green yeah. New Deal. Yes. Obviously, a lot of MMTers talk about we can do incredible things yeah. uh, with environment with the environment because we have much more fiscal flexibility. Now, when yeah. I look at the Green New Deal plans, it looks like we could theoretically run up to some hard resource constraints very yes. fast, yes. particularly things like the labor costs of retrofitting all these buildings and yeah. other uh, another. Yeah. This sort of uh, infrastructure demands. How do you build in safeguards into the law such that you don't run into inflation or if the policies were going to cause inflation, that you'd sort of mitigate them in real time? So, number one, we have to have this Congressional Budget Office score any spending based on inflationary implications and not based on the size of the federal deficit. We, that doesn't matter. OK, so you'll get we're going to do Medicare for all. How do you score it? Yeah. And that'll actually be scored as a inflation reduction. <laughs> and, and, and you think that economists or the CBO are able to come up with solid predictions about the impact of a policy, say, on retrofitting all the buildings towards green energy, the inflationary impact on them? Yes. If you give them specifics, they can do it. They've had the resources. Uh, I have no reason to think they can't. They have an inflation forecast now. Uh, you know, 2% for uh, 30 years. And that's without changing any of the entitlements, leaving everything in place. So they can't possibly be an overspending problem if the inflation forecast is 2%. On Thursday, the unhappiness that has been growing among Facebook shareholders over the past couple of years came to a boil at the company's annual shareholder meeting. Investors in the social media giant put forward eight different proposals, many of them intended to limit the power of Mark Zuckerberg. One proposal in particular targeted the CEO's voting power, calling for Facebook to change its dual-class voting structure, which gives Zuckerberg absolute voting control, despite only owning a minority of the shares. The only issue, the voting structure the proposal is targeting means it can never pass without the support of the founder and CEO. 
But that's not stopping one persistent shareholder. We spoke with the woman behind it. Julie Goodridge is the CEO of North Star Asset Management, which owns over 12,000 Facebook shares and has submitted the proposal unsuccessfully for the fifth straight year. We spoke with her ahead of the investor day and asked what the point of resubmitting the proposal was when she knew that Mark Zuckerberg wouldn't go for it. Um, well, I think you've seen that, that Facebook has gotten in itself into a lot of trouble over the last couple of years. We've, we actually have owned as much as 50,000 shares of Facebook over the time uh, since the company went public. You know, I think that this is an opportunity for shareholders to weigh in and for really for citizens to think about what privacy means, what kinds of um, what kinds of Internet access we really want, what sort of information we think we're sharing. Um, this is an opportunity for us to kind of weigh in on the ethics around uh, data gathering and data dissemination. And so I felt for the last several years that when we look at companies like Facebook, like Google, where you have have, um, you know, the, the primary uh, founders of the company having these gigantic uh, super voting uh, majority shares, and we start seeing them having all kinds of problems in realms of their business that they never even imagined they would probably have problems in. Uh, we really have to look at corporate governance and right. oversight and think about, you know, does he, is he really equipped to have all of the control at this point? So, Julie, just to play devil's advocate here, I mean, some would sort of look at Facebook's earning statements recently, and they would actually make the argument the company's still doing well, top-line growth is still uh, growing, they're still adding users. So despite some of the ethical issues uh, that could certainly are legitimate and could be raised, they're still making money for investors, the stock price is still up, why should they change? Well, they should change because some of their policies are getting them into a lot of hot water, and they, they ought to have some sort of perspective on what it is that they're doing. You know, I was thinking about the kind of trouble they got in with the Cambridge Analytica uh, scandal. Uh, we've got another major election coming up in 2020. You know, these guys have got to have some sort of a perspective on what their responsibility is in terms of creating, if they're going to be a news station, which clearly they think they are, then they should be held up to some of the same standards that uh, the rest of the media is held up to. Julie, I wonder if you've gotten any responses from any of the other big shareholders. I know that Mark Zuckerberg, with his voting control, ultimately would decide whether this is something to be voted on. But have you talked to anyone from, say, Capital Group or T. Rowe Price or any of the more passive investors like Vanguard or BlackRock? What's been their response? Well, you know, it's funny because uh, we don't actually spend a whole lot of time talking to other shareholders. We file our resolution and we make our case. Um, when, when Facebook or any of the other companies that we file with challenges, we try to make a, our case again with the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, what's interesting about our shareholder resolution is last year, um, the Class A shares, which are the shares where it's, you know, sort of one vote per share, we received 83% of the vote. So those Class A shares represent the people that you're talking about. Mm. So they represent, you know, the Black Rocks and, you know, all of the other major mutual fund companies. All right, Julie, I want to read, a, we do have a recent statement uh, from Facebook uh, regarding some of their safety issues. They're basically saying that our recent efforts to improve the safety and security of our community have required significant investment, which has impacted our profitability. This level of investment may not have been possible if our board of directors and CEO were focused on short-term successes over the long-term interests of our community and our company. 
there's a bigger issue here, Julie, I think, about these dual-class share structures and this idea that they're sort of put in place because of sort of the, the long-term vision of the founders, of these people who are sort of have sort of these long-term stakes, and that sort of is a buffer against some of the short-term interests of investors. How do you respond to that, and do you actually think it's possible for companies that come to market with these dual-class share structures to actually sort of change and move to something that's a little bit more equitable? I think it, it would be more equitable if everybody had one vote per share. You know, what I've said in the past is that people like Mark Zuckerberg and other founders, if they really wanted to maintain control of the company, they would have, they would have hung on to 51% of the shares of the company. I mean, that just kind of makes sense. I don't see any reason why, um, you know, this, this business about corporations being, you know, th stressed out about quarterly earnings, you know, that's something that's been uh, been a, an issue for years and years and years. It doesn't mean that it's right. It doesn't mean that that companies should be worried about quarterly earnings, you know, and, and not worried about sort of growth over a long period of time. That is absolutely not a reason why there should be a majority vote for uh, Class B shareholders at, at Facebook. Julie, you have another proposal as well, which is to separate the chairman and CEO role. Is there any chance the board members of Facebook, the other board members, that is, might support that proposal? It wouldn't matter if they did because, um, as, as we know, Zuckerberg is yeah. both the CEO and the chairman. I mean, a lot of these things, you know, the calls to break up Facebook and all this other stuff, none of that can happen without the support of Mark Zuckerberg. He has complete control. He is immune from any sort of outside ideas about what should happen with the company. I mean, he even when he when he pulled on Nick Clegg, who is the guy who made the the comments about his, you know, terrible concern about quarterly earnings reports, you know, this is a guy who you know, isn't hasn't really been a great PR person himself. I don't know why he pulled somebody in from outside of the United States to take on a problem which was, in in essence, really um, a, a huge problem in the U.S. and and certainly will grow to be a bigger problem internationally. So, Julie, looking back at all the issues Facebook has had over the last year or so, if these corporate governance changes had been in place already, do you think they would have avoided or at least mitigated some of those issues? Absolutely. I mean, you know, they try to throw, it was interesting, I was reading today that they're trying to throw Susan Desmond Hellman under the bus, you know, the one, you know, one of the few female uh, board members. This is what they try to do. They tried to show, throw Sheryl Sandberg under the bus. And I'm not saying these people don't have some sort of responsibility, but again, they are puppets. Um, they're puppets in the hand of Mark Zuckerberg, the way this, the company is set up. And it really is going to be a problem. It may not, you know, other people have said to me, oh, you should just divest your shares. Well, I actually sold, you know, all the shares for my clients. It's only the shares in our in our pension account that we're hanging on mm. to now because we are so concerned about the risk to shareholder value. And it may not be this year, um, but look, you know, if this guy had a clue about how to operate right. a, a global, a multinational global company, I mean, there's so many people that he could have had on his board advising him. He could have pulled in all sorts of folks. Uh, to help him uh, maneuver the, the legal challenges that he's facing, the government regulations, you know, his growing business model. You know, he hasn't really used uh, anybody, obviously, who has been helpful to him in this regard. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Then I sat down with one of the Democratic presidential candidates you may not have heard much about. Steve Bullock is the governor of Montana and became the 22nd Democrat to announce he was making a run for the White House. The former state attorney general is touting his experience as a Democrat who was elected three straight times in the state that President Trump carried by over 20 points. Governor Bullock says he can win back the state that President Trump flipped red in 2016 with a cross-party appeal. But before he takes on President Trump, Governor Bullock has to convince Democratic primary voters he is the best one for the job. So I started by asking him how he plans to stand out in the historically crowded field. Yeah, so I'm the only one in the field that actually won in a Trump state with Trump on the ballot. He took Montana by 21 points in 2016. I won by four. 25 to 30 percent of my voters voted for Donald Trump. And if we can't win back some of the places that we lost in this last election, plus bring out our base, well, then Trump's going to be president. What is it that you did? What is it that you have or the argument that you made to Trump voters in Montana that resonated? Yeah, and I think it's more than, like, this argument's more than about electability, from my perspective. Mm. I mean, how I get things done, too, because my legislature's about 60% Republican, is that folks don't agree with everything that certainly I stand for, but I go out, I listen, I try to understand their life, and I also say both here is where I want to go from a policy perspective, even if people may have differences a little bit, because we want the same things, right? We want a decent job, we want a roof over our head, we want clean air, clean water, safe community. And I think those, and having the conviction then to be able to go to places, not just among Democrats, but to talk to business folks, to talk to people all across, is I think how I get people that often may not agree with everything that I say or stand for, but believe that I'll fight for their best interests. Do you think there's still a big appetite within the Democratic Party for that sort of cross-partisan outreach of working together? Because it increasingly feels as though there are some people who want to give up on the idea that that's even a worthwhile pursuit. Well, I think we are now at like this challenging time with this 240-year experiment called representative democracy, right? And we need to make sure that first we got to beat Donald Trump, but we've got to make D.C. work again. And so many of the issues that you see also, and I've done more, I was attorney general for a governor in this post-Citizens United world, I think that money and the outside spending of money has made part of Washington, D.C., just so it's frozen. It can't move on anything. And to be clear, this is sort of what you've been calling your big idea. The main theme of your campaign is in terms of getting money out of politics, changing who has influence. Changing who has influence. When we pay more for drugs and health care than any country in the world, yet we also have can't even negotiate drug prices. Or when we can no longer even talk about climate change because of the outside interest. Republicans used to at least acknowledge that the climate crisis was real. We had to do something about it. But now you can't even get a Republican to say, yeah, we must do something about it. You look at a whole generation of workers have been replaced by independent contractors. Well, union membership is about half of what it was in the 1980s. And I think a lot of that really is, if we're going to fix the problems that Americans expect, you got to deal with the outside spending in our elections. 
Okay, how do you, you've, you've made the case that you have the best shot at winning back a lot of these uh, Trump voters, Trump states. Within the primary, however, how do you break out of such a crowded field? I think, first of all, that I break out because we not only have to win, we have to govern. You know, as a governor, most of the issues that we'll be talking about over the next year and a half, I've had to deal with health care. I've had to deal with education. I've had to deal with making sure, I mean, there are more Montanans as a percentage that have moved into the middle class than any state in the country. I've had to deal with the fact that not everybody's going to go to college. So we made our two-year colleges about professionally recognized certificates. And there's a thousand different apprenticeable fields out there. It's not just welding. So from that perspective, I think my experience is different. I think geographically I'm different. Mm. You know, if we ever want to get Washington, D.C. to work, this is more than about 270 electoral votes. Uh how important is it for your campaign to make the first debate? Do you think you'll make it? And would you drop out if you don't make it? Well, as long as people go to steeplelook.com, I'm going to make sure to get on that debate stage. Um, you know, I sure hope that I make the debate. And I think that, unfortunately, they're even starting to change the rules. Right. So it's more about, you know, paying direct mail firms and things to get individual donors than it is about talking to people, which is concerning. Sure hope that I make the debate, but we got a long way to go between today and the election. If we go back four years ago, I think Scott Walker was number one. Jeb Bush was number two. We saw what happened. So I think I have an important voice on that debate stage is the only person that actually won on Trump stage is the only person that's gotten progressive things done. But Whatever happens in a month, uh, that won't shape what I'm out doing. Okay, so just to be clear, I mean, obviously the bar is very high, and the bar, I think, it's even higher for the second debate in terms of the number of individuals. But if you don't make that first debate, you wouldn't necessarily drop out. Yeah, and the bar is high. In some ways, I'm disadvantaged. I only got into this two weeks ago because I had a job to do. My legislature was still going on. I had to get Medicaid expansion reauthorized. I had to freeze college tuition. So... Hopefully we'll get there by the number of donors. I think we'll get there by the polling. But even if not, this conversation is going to go a long past uh, this next month for sure. Uh, after, let's talk about some of the issues and the topics people are debating. Uh, do you think President Trump should be impeached? I think that Congress needs to fulfill its full oversight authority of the executive branch. And interestingly enough, the executive branch has, actually has to comply, like saying we're not even going to send people there. But, you know, I made, two, two days ago, I was at five different stops in Iowa. People were talking about health care and jobs and about the tariffs and the fact that they've got the soybeans in the bin. They're not talking about impeachment. And I think the, I would much rather be focusing on what folks need for the next year and a half, not sort of the squabble. And that's not to accept, I mean, the behavior of this president. We shouldn't normalize that, but we ought to actually be focusing on things that impact people's lives. And that's what we should be talking about for the year. All right, well, you mentioned uh, soybean farmers. So what do you make of Trump's approach to dealing with China? And what would the ideal uh, trading relationship with China look like under your presidency? You bet. Yeah. Met with a guy uh, this past week, lost $147,000 this year. He said, yeah, we'll get $70,000 back from the USDA. But... A, we're losing 77 grand, and B, we're going to lose those markets permanently. Now, I think we need to be tough on China, and this has been something that didn't start yesterday, right? This started when we gave them MFN status, but we can't go it alone. Like, just using 
I kind of say he's playing checkers. 25% mm -hmm. increase in tariffs. That won't just impact those farmers. That'll impact every family in America to the tune of 2,000 bucks a year. So you can't just use the blunt instrument of tariffs when they're playing a long game of chess. We've got to get their markets open. We've got to make sure. And that's working well, so with our allies I mean, and our apps. So what specifically, I mean, obviously Trump's done more than tariffs because now we see uh, the administration going after some of their tech giants. Things that go beyond merely uh, raising prices or the trading sure. relationship. So what are those long-term tools that an administration could use to, uh, as you put it, or to improve the playing field? Yeah, and I think certainly you have to try to get enforceability out of the World Trade Organization. That's not going to be enough. If they're not opening up their borders, not just to U.S. goods, but also goods from around the countries. When you have a different status for getting into the Chinese market, our allies and some of our adversaries have to come together. I mean, Trump's kind of made America first into America alone, and I don't think that's working. You can look at what, last 25 years, China first did this with the steel industry, right? They put up borders around their state, they subsidized an actor, and then they unleashed that actor on the world. Right. Then they did it with credit cards. Then they did it with microchips. Now they're doing it with tech. So certainly shouldn't allow or require this tech transfers mm -hmm. that we're seeing. But you can't do this just like the U.S. can't do this alone by any measure. Uh, last question. You mentioned uh, fighting for Medicaid expansion in your state. Where do you stand from a national perspective? Obviously, Medicare for all gaining momentum, debates going on within sure. your party about the existence or role of private health insurance. Where would you like to see the national health insurance yeah. system go? I think that health insurance or health care ought to be accessible to all and affordable. And affordable both to the individual and also to the federal government. So what I would propose is public option, negotiating drug prices, getting rid of surprise medical billing and out-of-network care, but not necessarily disrupting the 70% of folks that have employer-sponsored health care. We should make that more affordable, but I don't think that, at the end of the day, completely upending a system that is here. Maybe if you're starting from scratch, but that's not where we are. It's late May, so that means it's Stanley Cup season, and the St. Louis Blues are facing off against the Boston Bruins in the championship series. But we couldn't ask our guests who he was rooting for. That's because Chris Moynes is the financial advisor for roughly 10% of the NHL's active player roster, and he's got multiple clients playing on both sides of the ice. His Southern California-based firm, One Capital Management, has carved out a big niche in a field dominated by just a few Canadian banks, including the Royal Bank of Canada, where the Toronto native spent a decade working in the sports and entertainment group. We started by asking Chris about how advising hockey players about their money management differed from other professional athletes. Uh, you know, pro athletes are, are young uh, when they start their careers and uh, hopefully will have a long career, but we just don't know how long that career could last. So the, the importance of having a clear and cut plan right from the get-go is, is crucial for these pro athletes, whether it be hockey, baseball, basketball, football, or other, uh, other sports. When you're recruiting uh, clients out there, are you, are you starting with the guys who are already in the NHL, already in the league, or are you looking more towards uh, the, the minor leagues, American leagues, and things like that? 
That's a great question. Uh, a lot of people ask us whether or not we've got minimums and, and how would you do that, especially if, if you're trying to crack into this business with working with guys who are just starting in the league. So the answer to that is no. Uh, our greatest asset is, is our existing players, our, our players who are already in the room, uh, who are there to hear opportunities and, and uh, identify those opportunities when they hear their friends and their colleagues uh, in their locker room saying, hey, I need help with this. And a lot of the times, it, it, that's really where it comes from, the referral uh, from the existing clients. Right. And quite frankly, from, from parents that, uh, that we're dealing with as well. Yeah, word of mouth is invaluable here. Chris, which advice, so. financial advice, uh, are your clients most skeptical of and which advice are they most receptive to? Well, I think that they, once you hear, um, you know, the, the, the whole idea of what we're trying to achieve for them is, is to create certainty. Uh, professional athletes do not have certainty until you have a, uh, a signature on a contract that is of, of a longer term um, uh, capacity. So their lack of certainty is one of the biggest fears that, that I try to instill in these people. Uh, you have to have that certainty and that means having liquidity. Uh, so it's not a race to, to have uh, uh, money put to work right away for them in the stock market per se or long-term growth. Uh, a lot of it has to be um, you know, looked after at the, at the core, at the foundation, which mm -hmm. is really about the process of having certainty, liquidity. And as you get along into your career, I think that's really where you get into a little bit more of the longer-term aspect of the, the planning side that we have to look at. Chris, you got to be a little bit more than a money manager to deal with professional athletes. You got to be a little bit of a psychologist as well. If one of these guys comes to you, they're used to getting what they want. They want that new McLaren out there that's going to cost them, you know, three or four hundred thousand dollars. What do you say to them? Yeah, well, I'm not your yes man. Number one, uh, <laughs> number two is is that I have been called the uh, the Dr. Phil uh, of this kind of uh, business as well. Uh, you know, a lot of what we do is about life management. It's about understanding what's going on in these young young individuals' lives uh, and their families' lives. And so we really need to strive to, to, to ensure that we, we strike a chord with them and they can trust us. The fact is, is that, that they could probably have a lot of things that you and I couldn't have today. And so I have to make sure that they understand the impact that that purchase or that, that big spend could have on them long term and really kind of instill in them the idea that this is it has to last a long time because it could be over tomorrow. How often do you have to say no? What percent of the time do you say no to your clients? A lot, a lot. But at the end of the day, it is their money, and yeah. we have to, to adhere to that. Um, you know, at, for, for, from my standpoint, once you've done it for a long time, uh, I think that they're very, very uh, aware of that. And that's it for What You Missed This Week. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe and rate us at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can catch our show every weekday from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great week. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com.